gather together this morning and pray our hearts would be here to, to utter the same, those words, and to see the reality of the same. I pray that we would be a people ready for and eager for your return, Jesus. And as we celebrate, as we near uh, the moment of celebration that we mark our calendars with culturally, that cause us to look back on the first time that you came, would you fill our hearts with gratitude that you chose to come? Jesus, thank you for your unimaginable humility that you would empty yourself being born and made in the likeness of men you become a servant you become obedient to the point of death even death on a cross as we gather this morning God I pray through the power of your spirit and the power of your word that you would stir our hearts afresh and anew today to worship you more fully, to be submitted to you more completely? Would you use your word to convict us of sin and of righteousness? Would you pick up our weary hearts where we are discouraged, where darkness seems to cast a shadow on our lives and circumstances in different ways? I pray that we'd see the light of the gospel this morning very clearly. Thank you for life and breath and all good things. Thank you for your mercy that is new every single morning. And we ask you to do your work in us this morning through your word that you might be glorified more completely in us as a church and as individuals. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. Well, good to see everyone. Good morning to you and thanks for being here. Thanks for braving the elements. You can grab your Bibles. We'll be uh, finishing the book of Haggai this morning. Um, if you're using a chair Bible, we'll be around page 744, 745. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take one of those in the chairs. We'd love for you to have that as our gift to you. And, and we're finishing this book this morning, and I hope the journey through Haggai has been um, beneficial for you. And, and I, uh, I threatened last week to, to both end Haggai and start Matthew in the same sermon and I'm just going to kind of dip my toe into Matthew. So for those of you who really want to see, uh, almost like stopping to see a car accident, how that might work out this morning, like I'll disappoint you a little bit. We're not going to get real deeply into Matthew, but we are going to, we are going to see how uh, the end of Haggai holds hands with the beginning of the New Testament, uh, because we see the name Zerubbabel is really the connecting point in many ways between the end of of the old and the, the beginning of the new, um, at least as it relates to where we are in Haggai. So uh, we're going to be covering verses 20 through 23, and I'll ask you to join me there. We'll read that whole section, and then we'll go back and make some observations. This is verse 20. This is God's word for us, and this is what it says. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, 
I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So as we journey through this book, uh, you might remember this book is is separated into really four kind of mini sermons or sermonettes, and this is the, the final of the four. So the fourth and final sermonette that Haggai gives, and we see a familiar phrase you might remember from other points in the book, it says, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. So over the course of basically it represents about four months that covers this book, you have God's word coming to, to his people through his messenger, namely the the prophet Haggai. And these words have been words of rebuke regarding their spiritual neglect. You might remember that from the first part of the book. Words to challenge their, their spiritual complacency. Words of encouragement to increase their faith in the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. And words to make them remember how bad things were when they tried to live their lives apart from him. I'd encourage you to maybe go back and listen to some of the messages to piece it all together, because where we are in the history of the nation of Israel is we're in a time where they're returning back to Jerusalem, which represents really in a, a very significant way a, a point of spiritual and national restoration unto God. And so they've kind of returned from captivity, they're rebuilding the temple, and we'll see here what we saw earlier in chapter 2, this notion of something really, really significant that is happening. So significant that the wording is it's going to shake the heavens and the earth. There's something about the rebuilding of this temple, this moment, this people, this leader, Zerubbabel, that is so significant, like it it rattles the plates of the earth and the heavens. And so we're going to, once again, try to understand exactly what that means. But one thing we've seen really clearly is that Haggai's book, this letter, is full of God's voice, like God is speaking all over the place. In fact, you say Haggai doesn't speak apart from the word that God has given him. Now, just a, a quick kind of parenthetical pause, like pastorally for us as a people as we near the end of this year and begin the next. My prayer for us as we go through Advent and start our next year is that, that our lives will be full of God's voice, just like this word from Haggai has been that we set out to have our our lives be full of the voice of God, informing us, encouraging us the same way that God's word rebukes his people in this book, that it would rebuke us as we wander, it would challenge us, keep us from spiritual complacency, encourage us where we need encouragement to remain faithful in the call to pursue the things of God, and ultimately maybe remind us as well of the pain that it caused us to try to live our lives apart from God. But I pray our lives would be full of God's voice, just like this book is. But these last four verses of Haggai, if you're paying attention to the dates, they're the second of two sermons delivered on the same day. So what we looked at last week, verses 10 through 19, is kind of sermonette number one on this one particular day. So the last chunk is just given to a a separate person. You might remember that the word comes in different ways to basically three categories of people, to Joshua, who's the spiritual leader, to to Zerubbabel, who's more of the the political and civic leader, and then just kind of to the people at large. And this last message message is particularly to Zerubbabel, 
the political and civic leader of the people. And it says in verse 21 and 22, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying this, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. So this message is crafted specifically for Zerubbabel. And you could say it seems to address temptations and issues of the heart that are specific to him as a leader because the message is for him. And so for those of you who've worked with kids, let's say maybe I'll deal with the parents first. Like for those of you who have kids, you know that you see the world differently than your kids. Like you have a different set of challenges than your kids do. Like your kids worry about what snacks you have. And you worry about how many snacks your kids are going to get, right? So for those of you who own businesses, like your set of concerns and temptations are different than your employees. Just maybe a, a kind of a simple example. Your employee might be concerned about needing a new file cabinet. As a business owner, you're worried about getting business that will keep the business open. There's a different set of concerns and temptations that I would submit this message is geared toward Zerubbabel as a leader. He's got a different set of concerns. So the, the Israelites, you can maybe say at large in a, an agrarian culture, like they were worried about the fruitfulness of their crops. We talked, we, we talked through that. We saw some measure of, hey, you, you're not pursuing me, so even your crops are going to be disastrous. Turn back to me and I'll bless you. But their concern is maybe with a little bit more of the, the commonplace things like crops. But Zerubbabel looks at the work that he's setting out to do, and he sees that the, the work is significant to rebuild this, but he also sees that there's still a nation under the thumb of the Persian Empire. Although maybe the favorable thumb of the king at the time, he still looks around and surveys the powers and countries and nations around them, and he feels, I would submit, what is offered here, the, the power and authority and the heavy hands of the nations around Israel. And God says, I want you to see, you may not see it in front of you, but I want you to see it nonetheless. I'm going to overthrow the very things that you look around you and see and that cause intimidation to rise in your heart. I'm going to undo the stability of the nations that seem so stable. I'm going to take away the power of those that seem so powerful. And I'm going to do it through this work that you're doing. It's a really tremendous picture, but it's a little bit mysterious too. And we'll, we'll get there as we, we journey through it. But they're surrounded by these nations. But similar to the previous sermon at Haggai 2, 1 through 9, things aren't always what they seem. There's nothing in Zerubbabel's eyes that he can see that would incent us like a a sense of boldness or hope or even faith that something as significant as what God is saying would actually take place. But we saw this earlier in the chapter two. There was a similar notion given or similar promise given by Haggai earlier in the chapter in verses six and seven. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And he'll fill it with peace. God is going to use this humble temple, this humble people to shake the heavens and the earth. 
And back when we covered that section, we talked about how it really points us toward the fact that Jesus would, would come. A key is the Prince of Peace would come, and in filling the temple, walking into the temple later on, so hundreds of years later, Jesus would fill that temple with glory and with peace. He would shake what seems unshakable, and God will provide security from the place that seems most insecure. The strength of nations will be rendered weak, and the weak made strong. If you look in verse 7 in chapter 2, it says, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And that word treasures is really this section of the Bible where you hear these, the two songs we sang, Come Now Long Expected Jesus and O Come, O Come Emmanuel, both have the phrase desire of nations. And this is where that phrase comes from. The Hebrew word treasure in some places is, is translated desire. The desire of nations comes in. So the picture would be something like this. Desire of nations comes in. Jesus enters the frame. When the desire of nations comes in, the authority of nations falls down. Everything is subdued under his feet. When the desire of nations, namely the Lord Jesus, comes, every other source of power becomes subordinate. In Isaiah chapter 13, there's this picture of the heavens and the earth trembling, and I'll read it real briefly in verses 6 and 7 and 13. It talks about the day of the Lord, this future day, this moment in time where judgment will come. And let me read this. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, feeble and every human heart will melt. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. In Isaiah chapter 13 through chapter 23, there's this really elaborate outlining of how God will judge on a future day Babylon. What's interesting is that it was written at a time where Babylon wasn't the primary power of the world. And why is it significant? Well, because that message in Isaiah 13 was never delivered to Babylon directly. It was delivered to encourage the people of God of what God was going to do in the future. So it was delivered to God's people to solidify a promise that one day this world power would be undone. And like many prophecies in the Bible... There's a, there's a near sense in which the prophecy is fulfilled. So Babylon would be undone when Persia conquered Babylon. So that's the, that's the near fulfillment. But a lot of times in Scripture, what you have is you have a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. It's, it's, it's fulfilled on multiple planes. And so the ultimate fulfillment is in the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. And every, every form of Babylon, every organized idolatry against the reign of God will be made low and subdued under the feet of Jesus. And that's really the ultimate way in which Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 13. Well, why the effort in doing that? I would submit to you what Haggai's doing here. What the message from him is very much the same. There's a similar sense. There's a near and then there's a far way in which the end of this book is fulfilled. So in verse 23, it says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. 
in the near sense, Haggai's prophecy had to do with the completion of the temple. Like this, this work would be significant. It would be significant, and, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but it had to do with the completion of the temple. So the near fulfillment is this moment of completing the temple, the restoration of you as my people in this place. That's going to shake, in a sense, the heavens and the earth. It's going to be substantial because it represents the fact that you're with me again, and I'm your God, you're my people. But in the far sense, Haggai's prophecy had to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. On the day God shakes the heavens and the earth, on the day God overthrows the throne of kingdoms, on the day he destroys the strength and resources of earthly powers, on that day, God will take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. And so this takes a little bit of explanation. So we don't use signet rings. I'm guessing most of us don't. Maybe you do. If you do, come see me after. I'd love to hear the story. But only at this point, historically, only people of significance and nobility would have signet rings. So a signet ring would be, be something that you would press in, usually like a piece of wax, to, to demonstrate a mark of authenticity and to ensure the person uh, that, that the word or the decree actually came from you as a person of nobility. So signet rings were a symbol of authority or power and assurance, basically someone's words. So they would stamp or sign a document, and basically the document would say something like this. Like, this is from me, and I will do it. So a signet ring would demonstrate, like, this is from me, namely the person who has the power, and I'm going to do what's, what I say I'm going to do in this document, in this decree, in these words. So when Zerubbabel lays the stone, the last stone of the temple, it will be like God using Zerubbabel to push his name into the wax of the earth, and God will unmistakably demonstrate to his people, this is from me, and I have done it. There's a few things I want to highlight as we finish this section. The first is this very simple, but so profoundly important truth for us as God's people, that God does what he says. That God does what he says. Now, all throughout this book, God is speaking, but you see just in this last passage in verse 23. The word declare is used three times in verse 23. So if I got up here this morning and I looked at you and I said, I'm going to change the city. Firstly, if I use the first person pronoun, you should be concerned about that as a pastor. I'm not going to change anything. But maybe if I did this, maybe this would be a little bit more acceptable version of that. Like we're going to change the city together. Like, you'd be like, okay, there's some measure of trust that I have in MAD, the leadership team. Like, I've been around long enough. I'm like, I can get excited about that, but I really don't know, one, like, what you're talking about. And secondly, I'm not 100% convinced you have the power to actually fulfill that promise. But not so with God. When, when God says something, he does something. Like, his speaking is as good as his doing. So God does what he says. He's faithful to his word. And so when he uses Zerubbabel like a signet ring, it's effectively saying, I have said I would do it, and I did it. I told you you would rebuild this house, and you did it. And so there's a way in which it's just a moniker for the faithfulness of God, like a billboard in 
Jerusalem. I'm guessing they didn't have billboards, but should they have had a billboard, it would look a lot like the temple. Because the temple stands, even the initial phases of rebuilding Jerusalem, it was like a, a billboard that said, God said he would, and he did. God said he would do it, and he did it. It stood there as this source of strength and stability for the, the people of God, that God was faithful to his words. When the God of angel armies declares something, the God of angel armies does that very thing. In Zechariah 4, and you might remember, Zechariah and Haggai come on the scene at the, at the same time in the book of Ezra. So if you look in your Bibles, literally the book to your right is Zechariah, which is kind of helpful. It's not always that way. These two kind of hold hands with each other, contemporaries of each other. There's a section of Zechariah chapter 4 that I want to read this morning because I, I do think it's really helpful to hear some of the verbiage that Zechariah gives in his prophecy that again comes alongside in the same time as Haggai. So I'm going to read verse 9 in chapter 4 first, then we'll read a bigger section in just a minute. It says this, says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation and his hands will be the one that will complete it. God has said that he will finish the work, and he's going to finish the work. And so for the people of God, in the near sense, the completion of Zerubbabel's temple, a house for God, was going to be a significant signpost of the restoration of God's people to him. And it would render that billboard picture of this is from God, and he has done it, right? And hearken them back to what we read a couple weeks ago, that I'm with you, like work, get to work, do the work, I'm with you, my spirit is in your midst, don't be fearful. So in the near sense, that's the fulfillment. But in the far sense, God was going to shake the heavens and the earth through this same work. Zerubbabel is going to be a part of God overthrowing and destroying the strength of kingdoms and all those opposed to God and his people. But here's the challenge, is if you track if you track Israel in general, although God has been faithful to preserve them, or if you track this temple, maybe most specifically, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a picture just from this temple of world domination like you get from this verse. So there must be some different meaning, some other purpose in expounding upon this really earth-wide, universe-wide significance to this particular temple when it was rebuilt. So this temple would be desecrated in the second century BC, and we talked about by Antiochus Epiphans, later restored by Herod the Great in 20 BC. But by the time you get to 70 AD, it's destroyed by the Roman Emperor Titus. And so we, we have to kind of pause and be like, okay, well, this, this seems like something more significant merely than just the physical temple that's being built in the sixth century BC. What is the significance? How is this small temple going to make such a mighty impact? Well, in this temple, God will give peace as the Prince of Peace arrives and his glory will fill the temple in ways that surpass the former glory of Solomon's temple. Like we talked about those things a couple weeks ago. But here's what I want to emphasize this morning. Like Zerubbabel and his finished temple were not only like a billboard to the people, 
as to God's presence with them. But what he and the temple represent is also like an anthem of the gospel. So if you can lock in the picture of the billboard, the physical frame, as it were, of the temple is like this billboard. I said I would do it, and I did it. But nestled in the same work is this, it's almost like a song. It's a chorus. It's an anthem of the gospel that shoots us all the way to the end of the story. And you see similar notes in the arrival of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the building of the church, and then the coming of Jesus at the end. All of that is tied into this one moment by way of a similar theme and anthem. Let me read the broader section of Zechariah 4 and hopefully help explain what it is I mean by that. Zechariah 4, 6-10, this is the broader section of what we read one verse of a second ago. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Again, speaking to the same person, the governor. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That last phrase really meaning the the completion of the work of the temple. Here's a few things I'll share as I close off. This phrase, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. Like, isn't that an anthem of the New Testament gospel? It's not by your mightiness. It's not by your power that you are saved and made right with God. But it's by the Spirit of God has made you alive to the things of God. And that's what I mean by this is, this kind of lifts up this anthem, like it shakes the, the order of the earth, like it undoes the self-righteous when Jesus comes on the scene and starts preaching the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that is unshakable, but also shakes every other fraudulent kingdom because God chooses the small things to overthrow the mighty. He calls the weak and the frail to shame the powerful. So our faith rests on the powerful work of God through his spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through chapter 2. There's not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble among us, among the church. God chooses and he uses the foolish, the low, the outcast, the weak, the have-nots, and the are-nots to shame the things that are strong, to shame the wise, to shame the things that think that they are, he uses the are-nots. Why? So that every single person boasts in God, in God alone. In Jeremiah chapter 9, the very end of that chapter, Jeremiah says it this way. He says, let, the, let not the strong man boast in his strength or the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let the one who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. Let the humble boast and give thanks that they know the God of angel armies by his grace. 
Salvation belongs to God, and our only boast is in him. So not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. The other phrase that stands out in Zechariah's kind of partner section to this section about Zerubbabel is this, this cry of grace. Did you hear that? It's like when the top stone is laid by Zerubbabel, when it's all finished. Like what a sweet little nugget in the Old Testament. The response of the people is grace, grace to it. The work is complete. What God said he would do, he did. And, if, and to the extent we can look at this physical temple, like I think we can in some ways, and see it as the, the building of the spiritual life of the believer, let me just kind of etch this into your heart. When the final stone is laid on that temple, Zerubbabel's temple, the work is complete. The words that ring out are grace, grace. When the final stone is laid, as it were, in the spiritual work that is our lives, the same words will ring out. Grace. Grace. Saved by grace. Carried by grace. Finished by grace. From the least to the greatest. Grace. 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 By the spiritual power of God. Spiritual work accomplished only through spiritual power. There's one more phrase I'll highlight as I finish off. I know I've been saying I'd finish off several minutes, but just hang it with me. It's what we do as preachers, I guess. There's this mention of small things. If you go back to that text in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, it says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. This despise the day of small things kind of pushes us backward in Haggai. If you remember, like those who saw the previous temple, Solomon's temple, they looked at this one, just the foundation of this one, and many of them saw it as nothing in their eyes. They weeped at the foundation of the temple because it paled in comparison to the, the former glory of Solomon's temple. And I would submit this is the connection here in this language. There's some people that despise the day of small things. Like this temple with humble beginnings. God is saying through Zechariah, there's going to be a day where you rejoice in this thing that started with humble beginnings. This small temple by some miraculous work is going to be a source of rejoicing. Zerubbabel and his small temple will be the source of God's might and power. And if this is true, we would expect to see Zerubbabel show up in the New Testament. And we do, because the whole Bible points to Jesus. Like we would expect if this kind of impact from this man, from this work, spans all the way to the end of the story, you would expect Zerubbabel to show up in the New Testament, and we do. But you know where we find him? The only place we find him is in the family tree of Jesus. You see it in Matthew chapter 1, you see it in Luke chapter 3. It's the only place Zerubbabel shows up. If you're having a hard time making that connection, the significance of that is ultimately Zerubbabel. Like the evidence that I said I would do it and I'm, and I'm going to do it. I said I was going to do it and I did it. The, the greatest source of that, the far fulfillment is in the fact that Zerubbabel not only rebuilt a temple, 
but he was part of the family that led all the way to the Savior of the world. As we open the New Testament, we see, much like Zerubbabel's temple, a king of humble beginnings. A small king, a baby king, establishing a kingdom without end. And his kingdom would shake the heavens and the earth. Just like when Zerubbabel laid the top stone and shouts of grace rain down, if you could picture it this way, maybe this will change the way we view the manger this season. When Jesus, who is called the chief cornerstone, was laid in the manger, the same chorus rang out. Grace personified has entered human history. But God's grace and his kindness to men appear, that's the language that you see in the book of Titus, namely the Lord Jesus. When he, the chief cornerstone, was laid in a manger, grace rained down as well. You see in John chapter 1, of the many descriptions of Jesus when he came and his humanity, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. In verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's that theme, that anthem. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this picture of the mountain in Zechariah 4, the mountain that Zerubbabel is going to somehow make this mountain a plain, seems like the intent of that and the, really the interpretation of that is it could just be the work itself being so significant, but it also could be just the physical rubble of the old temple that surrounds the work that he's engaged in. So if you could picture it just for a moment, Zerubbabel, he's surrounded by the very stones of the destroyed temple from years before. Now he's seeking to build another one. So you have that circumstance that would certainly be intimidating. You have the nations around that seem bigger, stronger, and the promise is that that mountain will be laid flat. The work will be complete. And so here's maybe a spiritual connection in our own lives. The rubble of the former temple, the intimidation of stronger nations was fuel for discouragement. And you might find yourself maybe in a similar, in a spiritual sense, in a similar space. Where you look at the notion of rebuilding your life, pursuing God more fully and turning back to him. And you might feel something like that, like you're surrounded by the rubble of your own choices. Like this mountain, this heap, it seems insurmountable, like impossible to over come in order to make progress in your faith. God wants you to be encouraged this morning that the power and the authority to pick you up and make you new all belongs to him. And remember the promise God will overthrow through this king of humble beginnings. He'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms, destroy the strength of nations, the kingdom of nations, overthrow chariots and their riders, everything that would seek to disqualify us. And you find this language in many places. I'll read just one. In Colossians chapter 2, and this is the work of the gospel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this, and you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when the mountain of your sinful rubble is impossible to overcome, every one of us, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen to this part. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What did he do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. The ultimate overthrow of kingdoms, the ultimate destruction of strength of anyone that was supposed to stand against the purposes of God was done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. His perfect life lived in your place. His death is your substitute. And his resurrected life that gives you hope of the same. That when this life is over, you only enter into life truly because you're an adopted, redeemed, forgiven child of God. And I'll close with this one last verse before we sing our hearts out. Luke 21, 25 to 28. I referred to this a couple weeks ago. This is one of the points in Scripture that pushes us all the way to the end of the story when Jesus comes back. And there's similar language. Luke 21, 25 through 28. It says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, speaking of the return of Jesus Christ the second time, or his return. On the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Nestled in these three brief verses is the reaction of two different categories of people. There will be some people when Jesus returns who will be rightfully afraid who will run from the Son of Man. And I want you to understand this. If you find in your heart an unsettledness as to whether or not you'll be welcome in the presence of God when Jesus returns, let me just share this with you really briefly. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. Apart from Jesus, you have every reason to be afraid of God. But because of Jesus, you have every confidence that you can be accepted by God. That's the miracle of the Christian faith. By a miracle of faith and grace, we get to look at the finished work of Jesus, claim it as our own through faith. Everything that Jesus was, we can become. Everything we are, he became on the cross. So we don't have to be afraid. But yet there's a call in verse 28 for his people. Lift up your head. Straighten up. Be ready when he returns. There will be some. It seems there will be some, like even believers, his people who will shy away at his return because we're getting involved in things that don't honor him. But we want to be a church. We want to be a people, not self-righteous, because it's grace. Grace. The anthem is grace. But we're going to sing Even So Come to end our service this morning because we do want to be a people prepared for him. 
We want, to, we want to be eager to see our redemption draw near. Don't we? I pray that would be more and more the case in our lives. And there's a subjective sense of joy and confidence and eagerness to see our redemption drawing near as we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the things of God in this life. And I pray we do just that. Let me pray. I'm going to ask you to bow your head for a second. Just consider maybe in particular ways God has used his word to encourage and challenge you this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. difficult, but it is good for us to be, to be still, be slow to say a word in your presence, because you are God and we are not. What, what grace, what grace is it that you have not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far have you removed our sin from us as your people. Father, thank you for dealing with Jesus according to our sins. We're humbled by the fact that he would be rewarded according to our iniquities, that the chastening of everything we did wrong would fall upon him, that he would render his own life as a guilt offering for us. Thank you that we can be free if we hurl ourselves upon the grace of God found in Jesus. We can be free from condemnation. We can be set free from captivity to sin and live a new life. But God, I believe there are times we have a hard time believing that, particularly when we've been struggling in certain ways Throughout the course of our lives, it can feel like that particular area, these particular sins are just areas we'll never escape from. But God, I pray that you remind us that you free us from everything that we could never free ourselves from. You shake that which seems unshakable. You conquer the grave. Jesus, you can conquer our sin. You raise to walk in newness of life and you give us the, the power to do the same. Help us believe it. Thank you for the way that your word is so brilliantly pieced together by your hand to point us to Christ. And I pray, 
God, these words in the book of Luke will be true of us. That we'd, we'd stand up. We'd ready our hearts. And be about the things of God. And we rejoice at the return of our Redeemer as he draws near. Thank you that the final sentence in the Bible says grace to you all. From beginning to end, God, it's your grace. Your grace has saved us. Your grace will carry us. Your grace will finish the work in the end. And so we can say with a sense of joy, come, Lord. Come quickly. And help us be ready for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand and sing.